This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 175. I have the wonderful Charles Eisenstein joining me on the show today, and uh, it is a glorious conversation. I really, really enjoyed having uh, the time to chat to Charles, someone whose books I've read, papers I've read. Um, I've done his most recent uh, lecture series, which is sort of packaged as a course on his website, which I'll pop the details in the show notes for you on, um, that kind of accompanies his book, Climate, A New Story. And uh, he, for those of you who actually haven't ever come across Charles, I'll just let you know a little bit about him. He is a teacher, a speaker and a writer that focuses on themes of civilization, consciousness, money, human cultural evolution, and uh, charleseisenstein.org is where you can find uh, the hub for everything you might like to learn, uh, every book you might like to read, and it has a huge readership. And what I love about Charles is with his research and insight in the context of climate change, he details how the quantification of the natural world leads to a lack of integration and our fight mentality. We always feel like as humans, we have to have a war on something. And I've never felt easy about that. Personally, I always feel um, disingenuous. I feel... um, almost uh, like I'm being um, wrong to myself uh, or ignoring that little feeling that doesn't feel right fighting. Um, But I've never known really how to uh, pinpoint it and I've often shamed myself. Why don't you want to fight more? This stuff is worth fighting for. And, uh, And I'm still in the throes of unpacking that. But what I can say as someone who's been researching uh, the carbon emissions of our food uh, supply, food wastage, how we farm, etc., for many months now, something I have learnt is that it is absolutely about so much more than carbon. And it really is about uh, redeveloping a love of nature, redeveloping connection to the land, however that looks, whether you're in the city or in the country, because of course we can play support roles to those who are the leading ladies and men in this by buying incredible regenerative ag, biodynamic produce wherever possible, etc. And uh, if we heal the land, we start to heal the water cycles. Uh, we start to rebuild forests. Uh, there's just so much that by doing something as simple as focusing on what it takes to cool down the soil um, brings the rain back. What you know, what it takes to redefine our perception of weeds um, can bring the rain back. And uh, it is, you know, it's just a huge rabbit hole. And I think. You'll probably leave today's uh, chat uh, interview with Charles 
perhaps having more questions than you had before you started listening. And as a society, we tend to just want to go for the people who give us the answers straight away. What are the top three things I can do today? And this is not one of those conversations. This is an exploration of how it may be that we arrived here uh, with some examples, some ideas, and it helps us broaden our definition of what uh, what believing in uh, a healthier planet looks like beyond a climate change debate per se. And, and what I think the power of that is is that we may find more of us feel like we can play a beautiful part in uh, healing our planet and uh, supporting agricultural practices that heal our planet, supporting organisations that are reversing desertification. Um, So it's not just about fighting the evil stuff, which of course has a huge place and we really do need to change a lot of the discourse um, and the vested interests and, you know, um, fossil fuel companies being able to fund uh, donations at huge, huge amounts um, uncapped amounts, uh, fund political um, uh, parties and, uh, you know, all of that has to change, of course, uh, and greater transparency is required. But what's also required is the, the fundamental focus on healing our planet and uh, we can look very microscopically at that and play a beautiful role, all of us. So hopefully by the end of this conversation, you feel a little bit closer to what that might look like for you from your corner, because it's going to take all of us and we're all going to feel called to different aspects of that. And that is okay. And I guess, uh, you know, we talk about self-love and shame and, and a few other things in, in this chat. We look at how society came to be, how it is today, how our disconnection from nature came to be, how it is today. Uh, how we feel so hell-bent on, you know, working on things like self-love and appreciation of self and how that came to be that we're so obsessed with that. And then, of course, um, talking about climate. So it really is a a twists and turns conversation, but I think it speaks to the fact that um, Charles is a a modern-day philosopher and is therefore interested in many, many things. So I didn't want to limit us by any means to speaking about one of the subjects he's passionate about. In the end, it just felt like it was important to go down the the tangents that we did. So uh, I I definitely think uh, a lot of you are going to to love this look at um, the rivers, the forests, the creatures of the natural and material world and how they're sacred and valuable in their own right, not just for carbon credits or preventing the extinction of one species versus another. Um, and, you know, he asks us to look at why you might have become someone who would call yourselves a, an environmentalist in the first place. And those people, all of us, were likely to point to a river that played a role uh, for me, it was visiting a tiny little island off the coast of the tiny little island of Mauritius where my mum's from and seeing the microplastic pollution there um, and thinking, gosh, there's got to be a better way. 
Um, you know, that was one of the big ahas for me. And then factory farming was the next big aha for me and seeing the destruction of not only um, these beautiful animals' lives in that process but also the destruction of the soil. And then, of course, monocropping agriculture became, you know, you, you start to peel back the layers and you see um, how much is taking more from the planet than it gives. And um, I guess what I love about Charles's uh, writing on this subject is he refocuses us away from impending catastrophe and our inevitable doom. And, you know, those, those articles, they terrify me and they make me think, oh, why aren't I fighting louder? And, and then I think, oh, but it's not peaceful. And I, I really, peace is one of my biggest values. It came up number two for me when I did a whole bunch of values work with a business coach many years ago. And I was surprised, but I wasn't at the same time because it's like, but what about, and you think of all these other things that are important to you, but peace was really high up there. So for me, I've always struggled and I need to find a way to do good peacefully. I've always been like that. You guys know this. Um, and, uh, and, and yet I don't, absolutely don't um, begrudge or um, condemn anyone who does good things for the planet in other ways that look different, that might be really loud and they might be really angry because I think we need all of us, the, the people who sound the alarm, the people who put their heads down, the people who reach out compassionately. It's going to take us all, right? We are in a big stage of awakening and if, if the overarching message today can be that you can find your place in that and you can find your powerful way of making a difference from wherever you are in the world, then we've done our job today. We've done our job. Um, so I really look forward to uh, sharing that chat with you in just a moment. I want to remind you, those of you who maybe have only just become curious about what you're putting on your skin or around your home, how it might be impacting you and the planet in this spirit of giving more back to the planet than we take, especially when it's things that we use for personal consumption, we have a huge opportunity there to start representing companies, brands, ingredients um, from various sources that do far more good than harm in this beautiful world of ours. And Go Low Tox is an e-course that I started to help plant those seeds and take those initial first steps into uh, being healthier for yourself, but also for our planet. Because if it's not a double win, then it's not a win. That's my view. And, uh, and it's such an empowering course. It starts today and uh, you don't have to be anywhere at any specific time, but if you Google Go Low Tox, you should be able to find it straight away and I'll also put the details in the show notes today. But I would invite you to join me and the many who have signed on. This is our 15th round of this course and the change that is created when a collective group of like minds all wanting to do better by people and planet and of course, uh, all the beautiful beings that we share this planet with, uh, this is a great, great place to start. So uh, that starts today and you have um, a couple of different opportunities as to how you join, whether you choose the basic sort of 30, 60 day access or the lifetime access. And if you want some help 
uh, financially on the lifetime access front, we have the wonderful open pay partnership, which allows you to set how many um, months you pay interest free for, which is really, really great. Um, and it's only two twenty nine Australian, which for Americans right now is like one fifty or something crazy with our terrible exchange rate. So it's great for uh, the um, the Americans out there. And um, and I I am very excited at what we're going to achieve. I think it becomes more and more about how we can do good beyond our shopping baskets and into the planet. And uh, and I'm very excited for this round. So I hope you join me there. Uh, and if you join me in the next couple of days, it's no problem at all. We have Friday and Saturday catch-up days, so you'll be able to catch up over the weekend if you missed anything. And if you're super, super busy right now, I would urge you to just look at the topic list once you've registered because you'll have lifetime access if you choose that option. Just choose the five topics that really, really speak to you right now that you want to make shifts with. Come back to the rest later. It's okay. But the point is to start and enough, not enough of a start. We all think, oh, it's going, I've got to wait until it's perfect, until I'm going to have all this free time, until I'm going to have... Uh, you know, uh, my kids moved out of home or until we're going to move to the new place next year. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine waiting to do better by your health and the planet to get all the ducks in a row perfectly? It's never going to happen. So I would urge you to join me today. Now, uh, as always with a fresh new month, we have a wonderful new show supporter. We have Walida for you this month. And these really are, uh, company, and Walida really is a company that speaks exactly to what I was talking about with uh, if when we do buy consumer products, can we find brands that are doing far more good uh, out there than we could ever imagine hoping to do ourselves from our balcony garden or a back garden? We always feel like, oh, I'm not doing enough. The opportunity as a consumer, a mindful consumer at that, where we're always trying to buy less and buy well, of course, is that when we do buy something, we are feeding a better world, literally. And uh, Walida is one of those companies who is doing incredible work in the world. They're one of only two brands worldwide to be certified with the Union for Ethical Biotrade. Um, the sourcing and the sourcing with respect logo, uh, acknowledging their commitment to sourcing with respect for people and the environment. That is a very strict certification, and it is one that they have. So you can be super confident that when you're buying that product, they're doing a heck of a lot of good out all around the world. And in fact, their mission to preserve biodiversity in their or biodynamic gardens. And through their trade partners, their fair trade partners, together they cultivate organically approximately 248 square kilometres worldwide, the equivalent of almost 35,000 football pitches. That is fabulous. And that is growing all the time because of the light being shone on the incredible work that they do and because of people like you and me wanting better and better options making sure our dollars are making a difference out there when we do buy stuff. So this month you have 15% off the entire Walida range and free shipping over $29.95. It is an Australian offer, I'm sorry to say, to our international listeners, but it's a very accessible um, product worldwide. 
Uh, and uh, for our Aussie listeners, you actually can send back your empty Walida um, packages and they will recycle them for you. I have a TerraCycle bin at home and my whole family comes and drops their empty tough to recycle items into it for the few plastic products we still buy um plastic packaged products we still buy that is there is absolutely no plastic in Walida products I can assure you in terms of microplastics microbeads none of that um but there are more and more companies starting to welcome us to return our empty packaging and have them recycle it through the TerraCycle programs and TerraCycle is an incredible business that has managed to find ways to recycle really traditionally tricky stuff to recycle to turn it into new consumer goods that uh, aren't going to not be made of plastic anytime soon. So it's wonderful that we can give the few things that we do have packaged in plastic an afterlife and a new life and contain waste streams so that it does get to where it needs to go to become something new instead of out into oceans and pollution and landfill. So uh, lots and lots of wonderful things about this beautiful company and I hope you go to discover a few things about it uh, by trying a couple of their products. Over the month I'll share a few of my favourites and you'll probably see them on Instagram. I'll do a little demo for you. Um, But uh, it is exceptional and if I think about what I used from Walida in the last 24 hours, let me just have a little think. I used the Arnica Massage Cream after my tennis coaching lesson yesterday. When you have a private tennis lesson, <laughs> anyone out there who plays tennis and you go solid for an hour, it is one of the most intense sports. But gosh, I love getting a passing shot past my coach. So it's always worth it. But the Arnica Massage Oil is waiting for me after my shower, always. And this morning, I used the beautiful Evening Primrose Oil um, based eye cream which is feather light yet super, super nourishing. I've really noticed a difference. I graduated from the rose eye cream last year. I thought, okay, I'm 43 now, it's time. And uh, it is just gorgeous. So I love that. And I used as well the smoothing rose face lotion today, which is a gorgeous light yet nourishing summer option for people who live in humid climates. It is perfect. So... Let's chat to Charles, shall we? I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I've enjoyed it. I feel like I feel like as I've recorded this intro, it's actually been quite long. Hopefully you haven't been bored and uh, hopefully you're just about to be very inspired. I would actually encourage you to um, have a notepad, write down things that come to you. There were a lot of things that came to me and I, um, and I wrote them down. And, uh, and one of the, the quotes that you're about to hear is this, the story that we hold of somebody, somebody else that is, is an invitation for them to act from that story. Cool. Huh? So here we go uh, with this beautiful conversation. Enjoy. Good morning, Charles. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, it's not morning here, but... No, no, good, 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 good evening to you. <laughs> Um, I'm really, really excited to have you on the show. I think you're telling a wonderful new story about uh, climate, but I've been following you for a while and I love the essays you put out. Uh, so it's an absolute joy to be able to pick your brain and, and, uh, and have you share your quite different take, but a take that often gets missed in this fighty, fighty world we are in these days. 
And I would love to start with a simple question. I know your beautiful pigeon story with your dad, but um, I would love to know, were you always so curious as a kid? Like not even specifically on nature and environment and land, but did, did you have innate curiosity that you always remember having had maybe slightly different to friends, always like jumping down the rabbit hole? Yeah, I think I was always like that. I'm trying to remember, um, just, I would just sit and think a lot. Would you? Um, yeah, and, and my parents would say, what are you doing? And I'd be like, thinking. <laughs> um, and you know, sometimes I was thinking kid stuff, you know, and, and, but, but also I was puzzling. Maybe that would have been a better word, puzzling. Mm. Uh, just trying to make sense of the world, which is something that children naturally do. And it just didn't make sense. You know, what I was being told about myself and the world didn't, didn't add up. Right. You know, there, there, were, there were incoherencies that I just um, never, never could really tolerate. So that, that has driven a lifelong inquiry. Um, not that I've, you know, come up with the final solution, but I've, been in the question for a long time. Mm. And, and I think it, it is the, the things we learn as we question that are the important things rather than the destination. Because if we keep revising and improving, then that's really, you know, more than yeah. we've been doing often. Or, yeah, we've been making improvements for the sake of convenience or for the sake of economic growth. And, um, and we're starting to see now that they're not holistic enough. And, <laughs> yeah. So um, then speaking to nature as you grew up, because I think your pigeon story is really beautiful. Can you share it with us? Yeah, that was, I, I described this in, in a book I wrote. The, my, uh, it was a milestone in my uh, ecological awakening when I learned what extinction really meant because I was standing with my father looking at a flock of birds and and I said, wow, that's a big flock of birds. And he then told me about the passenger pigeon and described how, how flocks of these birds would cover the sky from horizon to horizon, billions of birds. And nobody thought that there, there could possibly be an end to them. They would just point their guns up into the air, he said, and shoot, and the pigeons would fall down. It seemed like an endless supply, mm -hmm. but there are none left. The last one died in like 1911. And they will never be seen again. They're just gone, extinct. That's yeah. when I learned what extinct was. And like I, I, you know, I cried about that. Mm. Um, it just seemed so wrong. Yeah. Like, and nothing could make it right. Like no explanation no, of, of how humanity is progressing, like no narrative of progress. Nothing could make it right that that had happened. And that, that story and that knowledge sat with me and still sits with me, making it impossible to reconcile yeah. the world that we take for normal with, with what I know to be real. So, yeah. so you know, that, it, sometimes I describe it like a burr in my shoe, you know, like a, a, like a, or a piece of sand in my eye, you know, something that... Um, never goes away 
and demands that you do something about it, like demands that, that this incoherency be reconciled somehow. And if you can't change reality, then you have to change normal. Yeah. And so my life has been about how do we change what we believe to be normal. Mm. And it's so true, isn't it? Because humans tend to rationale the idea of if you see it a lot or if it's spoken about a lot and no one's upset or in arms and it's just kind of around, then it's normal. But what is normal in culture does not make it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, it reminds me of a time when I was a kid now. I just had not even I just had not even thought about this for decades. But I'm from Mauritius on my mother's side, a tiny little island in the Indian Ocean. And uh, that was where the dodo bird lived. And I remember learning about it in a research project about how the Dutch, but like, you know, they would kill the dodo bird and barbecue it and eat it. And um, they didn't realize that they were going to run out of food. And it was one of the reasons they didn't succeed as colonizers, because ultimately their main protein source was now gone. Um, and, uh, and I just remember thinking, wow, it's almost like greedy, their greediness, their need to keep eating um, meant that we didn't have that beautiful bird anymore. And mm. I remembered equating greed with extinction. Um, I was doing this grade four project uh, about the dodo bird. And I had not thought about that project until you just told that story, which I had read before, but I didn't even think about it then. Um, Imagine, yeah, imagine an education system that fosters in kids. Okay, so now that you know that's greed, let's explore that. Where else do you see this? Where else is happening? Well, you know, so I, I think that greed is... A false diagnosis. Okay. Uh, I don't think that the problem is greed. In fact, I think that to attribute the destruction of the biosphere, the <laughs> extinction of the dodo, the, the extinction of the passenger pigeon, et cetera, et cetera, to greed is actually to set up the same basic pattern that is responsible for the, the extinctions. Yeah. Because you set up greed, um, and then there are the greedy people, and there's the greedy part of yourself. And you yeah. go to war against these things and um, a better world in that conception comes through domination. Yeah. Dominating the greedy or dominating the greedy part of yourself and holding on to generosity or altruism uh, against the forces of greed. It's a war mentality mm-hmm. and it skips over a deeper understanding of where does greed come from? Like were these Dutch explorers actually greedy? Yeah. Or it's, they maybe look greedy. Um, what is greed, actually? Mm. You know, greed isn't to meet your needs. Greed is to take more than you need. Mm. That's what greed is. So why would anybody ever take more than they need? And you could ask this about overeating. You could ask this about overconsumption. You could ask this um, in, in many realms of life. Why would anybody want more than they need? Like that's not actually even to your benefit. Mm. So the, the origin of greed then comes from some deeper wound where we're compensating for another kind of lack, the lack of something that we do need with more and more of what we don't need. Yeah. Therefore, if we can meet the authentic lack, the greed will 
not have anything to power it. So this is, is um, it's a very different way of approaching change, mm. uh, approaching healing. Um, uh, even in medicine, a lot of, in, in you know, standard medicine, healing often comes again through a war, through dominating something. Yeah. Through killing the yeah. antivirals, you know, yeah. and the bacteria, like um, uh, antibiotics, uh, surgery, or the pharmaceutical domination of body hormones. Like it's all the same mentality. And we see it in, in every realm actually of civilization. Mm. So I think that the deeper revolution would include uh, taking, taking, like really examining what, where does greed come from and where everything that we judge, where does that come from? Then we can have real healing. Mm. And so something that's really um, confounding to a lot of us who are trying to be more peaceful, trying to find the overlap in where we all can connect from and depart from forward in a more collaborative way, um, everything seems to be trying to be pitched in these black and white extremes these days, uh, politically, dietarily, you know, you're bad if you're vegan or you're bad if you're an omnivore, like there's the two mm -hmm. arguments and there just seems to be so much energy spent in this fight um, around who is right. And I would love your, yes. uh, your insight on how we find the beautiful overlaps that we all share um, and, and start to be more respectful of people who just prefer to live a different way to us. It just seems like that respect is flying out the window right now, out of control. Yes. I think that this polarization and this, this, uh, this fighting mm -hmm. over every issue, um, this division of society into opposing camps, we're right and they're wrong. Um, yeah, I think it comes from a wound of self-rejection. Mm. Because, and it comes also from the disintegration of community and um, the tide of, of separation that has cast us out from full participation and belonging in the world. So when, um, when we've been cut off from community, from intimate relationships with nature, from this entire matrix of relationship that tells us who we are, that knows us intimately, then we don't know who we are. And when we have a religious system, a parenting system, a school system, uh, even a scientific ideology that says fundamentally that you're bad um, and that progress comes through overcoming the self, then in order to establish that you're good, you have to take sides and identify with being right and being on the good team, mm. team good and not team evil, the light side of the force and not the dark side of the force. As long as we carry this, this collective and personal wound of self-rejection, then we're going to be susceptible to narratives that demonize others and valorize ourselves. Mm. And so we can, we can, you know, 
create situations where we can hear the stories of others. We can propagate teachings of empathy. We can try to instill a sense of what it's like to be somebody else. We can do all of these things. And these are good. Um, but as long as the basic wound of self-rejection is there, we're going to be susceptible to dehumanizing narratives about other people. And we're going to be susceptible to political divisiveness, polarization, and, and we're going to be, be because we're never going to solve our problems. Mm -hmm. we're, going to, we're going to always expend all of our political energy fighting each other because when you diagnose the problem as the bad people on the other side, that's another false diagnosis. Mm -hmm. You blame the greed of the oil company executives yeah. or the, the greed of the meat eaters, you know, or wh whoever you're blaming and saying there's something wrong with them. If I were them, I wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. I would never do that. It's inexcusable. I would never do that. What you're saying is I'm better than you. Mm. Is that actually the truth? Or is it that if you were in their situation, maybe you would do as they're doing? Do you really know what it's like to be them? Do you know for sure that you wouldn't do as they do? So the ideology of evil basically obscures the, what it's like to be somebody else. It obscures, it blocks empathy and it locks us forever in a cycle of fighting that never reaches the real cause of any of our problems. Mm. And so how do we at a, at a you know, start with one, start with us level, start to repair that, do you think? What does it look like in our daily lives? What do we catch ourselves in? What do we raise our awareness on as we respond to different things that we see and talk about? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of spiritual teachings and practices um, and not just spiritual, but relational, you know, uh, where, where we're encouraged to notice our assumptions about other people, to notice the stories that we're carrying, to notice what we project onto others and to ask, uh, like Byron Katie does, you know, is that actually true? And to take responsibility ourselves for, for the stories we're, running about other people. Like these are powerful practices. Um, and I think to, to, to go back again to that primal wound that disposes us to those stories and attracts those stories to us. Mm. Um, like this is not necessarily, I would love to say, here's how to heal that wound. Here's how to really love yourself. And then I'd be making it into another thing you have to do. <laughs> it's like, oh, I've got to fit in my meditation. I've got to fit in my, yeah. And then it becomes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, was, I was speaking to a young woman uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, and she was like, I've been working on self-love for years now. And, and I said, um, maybe this isn't something that you can work on. Maybe the way that you learn self-love is by being loved. We learn by example. We learn by modeling others. Mm -hmm. So if you've never experienced unconditional love, if love has always come with conditions, mm 
if you were raised as a child that you have to earn love, deserve love, um, get love by obeying, by being a good girl, then how do you ever learn self-love? It's always like, I love myself because I am X, Y, and Z. I am a good person because I'm X, Y, and Z. And underneath that, there's the sneaking suspicion that maybe I'm not a good person and maybe therefore I'm not worthy of love. And a lot How of do we learn have that little internal voice yeah. waiting to come out and uh, yeah. 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 So so if you know, if you've been working for years on <clears throat> self-love, is that even loving? Like what if I get what you're saying. So it's almost yeah. like you're punishing yourself eventually because you haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. And then you become even worse than you were before at not loving yourself. Yeah. yeah. And so maybe the thing to do, maybe this is something that we have to receive, you know, that it's not up to you. And if you have not healed this wound of self-rejection and, and really discovered authentic self-love, it's not because you did something wrong. Maybe, but maybe it is a gift that is coming in right now. Maybe the doorway to that gift is maybe just what I just said. Like, oh, it's okay. It wasn't my fault. I did the best I could. Here's why I have this wound of self-rejection, like understanding. That's a kind of an understanding and a relaxation because really love, whether of self or others is our native state. Mm. And what we're searching for is, pardon me for sounding like a spiritual teacher because like, <laughs> I don't aspire to be one, but, but what we're searching for is already there, you know, it's, it's already there. And simply to direct some attention to it, the, to the self-love, the self-appreciation, the pride in your accomplishments, that's already there. The knowledge that it's okay to love yourself, that you're not gonna get in trouble for meeting your needs that you get to have joy in life, that you don't have to qualify, that you're already a good person. Like that seed of knowledge benefits from some attention mm. and you don't have to make it happen. It's already there. And right now I'm just pointing attention to that. Yeah. Yeah. And do you feel that, um, part of the reason so many of us chastise ourselves for not loving ourselves enough and, and finding that self-love peace, if you like, or we feel like it's something we need to look for. Do you feel like part of that is because we've started to rapidly lose so many of the connections we've had societally over the last few decades, the family nucleus, you know, it takes a village, but we've got no village uh, when we're raising kids so often. Do you feel like that, that being, des you know, being genuinely needed by others 
wanting to give to others and having a really clear path as to who those significant people are in our lives um, with a beautiful big social fabric web that's really solid. I, I don't yeah. see that around much um, in a lot of cases. No, and that, that breakdown of community and extended family and connection to place, people move around a lot, you know, so they don't have, they don't look out their window or walk out their door and, and have stories associated with each landform. There's not much of a sense of place in developed countries. Uh, and it depends, maybe like in Ireland and smaller places there still is, but in the United States, Canada, Australia, places where there's a lot of mobility, um, you know, especially in urban and suburban areas, there's, there's not a lot of connection to the people around you and the place where you live. And so that leaves us not knowing who we really are. Mm. Because our identity depends on relationships because we're not actually these separate selves. Yeah. Who we are is relationship. That's um, what I call a, a, a new story mm. and an ancient story. But, but for, for people who grew up in the society of the individual, where we were told that who you are is a separate individual, it is a new story to understand that, that when our full complement of relationships has been truncated down to very few, that we feel less alive and less present and less at home in the world. And we want to reconnect. We want to have community. We want to be needed and to need others. And that, that independence, it's, it's preferable to dependence on distant corporations and banks and governments, but it's not really what we want. Mm. What we would like would be to, to be interdependent with those who we love and who yeah. know us. And so not having that generates a tremendous insecurity. And that takes us back to the greed mm. because how much money do you have to have to compensate for having a community of people around you who will take care of you no matter what, you know, a lot of money to have that kind of security. Yeah, absolutely. And so can I ask then why do it tends to be women because I, I've heard this conversation so often, why do mothers, have such trouble reaching out for help when we need it. Why is it such a, that it feels like there's a shame around saying, could you mind my little Jimmy for three hours because I've got this appointment. We feel really well, embarrassed to ask. And that's to me devastating. That's really sad. I mean, one reason that, that we're embarrassed to ask I mean, so on the one hand, there's like this ideology of independence and stuff, but that ideology rests in a cultural context of monetization, where more and more relationships have been monetized. In like a traditional village, that wouldn't be a problem. In fact, it was routine. Even in the suburbia that I grew up in, people kind of looked out for the kids. You know, like, like parents didn't necessarily know where their kid was playing. Could be at someone's house, could be somebody else's house, uh, but there was still a little bit of vestigial amount of community care for children. I had that too. Very yeah. Today, you know, you pay for daycare or you pay for a babysitter. So if you're reaching out for help and saying, "Can you take my child?" Basically, you're saying, "Can you perform a service that I would otherwise pay for?" 
So of course you're going to be embarrassed because you're not in a gift relationship with that person or a gift culture in general. In a gift culture, the gift of taking care of your child for three, three hours is part of a network of gifts where that person, you know, when her uh, mother was visiting, you helped clean the house because she couldn't deal or you um, helped with the harvest last mm-hmm. fall or you helped fix, fix their wagon or whatever. Like, yeah. you know, in, in, in a- There's reciprocation everywhere. Right, so of course you're, you're fine to ask because everybody owes everybody. Yeah. Everybody's in debt to everybody else. That's what community is. Mm-hmm. Today, we don't have that. We pay for everything. So there's no gift network to draw from to ask for help. Mm. We're going to fix that. <laughs> yeah. So this isn't like some psychological problem that women have. You know, this, no, is, no. this yeah. is cultural. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. It makes perfect. Yeah. So... Uh, On to another form of separation and and segueing here into talking about climate, a new story, um, one of your most recent works. Separation from nature. Let's let's start there. How did that happen? That goes back thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, You know, I I wrote a book uh, 15 years ago called The Ascent of Humanity, which traces that evolution Ooh, in, uh, I that one. I that down. Yeah, well, it's uh, 600 exhaustive pages. <laughs> of... Some light reading on the holidays. <laughs> yeah, don't you love my sales pitch for that book? Yeah, I know. Very, very it's, subtle. Yeah, right. It's uh, <laughs> 600 pages of fine print. So, yes, go out and buy it. Uh, but basically, it, um, it d- describes how separation built on itself over eons, uh, starting with with, I mean, you can take it back as far as you want, but you could start with fire, which created a, a domestic realm separate from the wild and gave humans mastery of some sort over nature. And then domestication followed that, where um, we, we turned plants and animals to our purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, uh, industry, where we created profoundly unnatural objects and lived in an environment that was unnatural and, and dominated materiality, you know, to the digital age uh, where we're not even engaged in materiality uh, in large parts of our lives. Um, And so this, this was, this was a a historical cultural phenomenon that the, the separation from each other involves the, um, dehumanization that's implicit when people are reduced to standardized roles. And those standardized roles evolved in builder cultures, uh, ancient Egypt, you know, ancient Rome, where the prototype of, of the factory was developed. Uh, and then in the Industrial Revolution, where people became, um, for practical purposes, nothing but a job description, a narrow, specialized producer and a consumer. So this. If, if you can, you know, and you could replace them with some other person and the machine goes on unchanged. So, so the, it's the part, so part of it is conceptual, the seeing of the world as composed of a bunch of standard parts mm. and, and um, impersonal generic substances 
And then you start to see humans that way too. Yeah. And treat them that way. And once you've created that environment, that environment reinforces the perceptions. Mm -hmm. Because if we're immersed in a world of commodities, standardized objects, then, we're, then of course the world is made of standardized objects. And when our interactions with other people are standard and formalized and, and very narrow, like most people that you interact with, like if you buy something on Amazon from an Amazon seller, um, all you see of that person is the price of a thing that they're offering. They are in your world a seller, mm. not a full human being because that's all you see. So we, we're immersed in circumstances that condition us to see the world as separate from ourselves. So this is not like some, you know, errant philosophy, and we can just change the philosophy because it's woven into our entire way of life. And that means to change it requires a full revolution. I'm not just saying like a political revolution. I'm saying a revolution in human beingness, which mm -hmm. is upon us. That's the, the sense, that's the change that we sense, the epochal change that everything is going to change. And it always seems that it's going to happen in our lifetimes. Um, maybe it's on a much vaster timescale, but the feeling that a revolution that goes all the way to the bottom and includes everything is underway is an accurate feeling. Mm. It definitely feels like we're in there. And something that I thought about as you were talking about that Amazon seller example was I, I had posted something on our Facebook page the other day and um, someone commented negatively quite negatively called me a hypocrite and, and it very rarely happened. So it really kind of like, <laughs> I felt it. And, uh, and then I thought, okay, I'm just going to hover over their name. Oh my gosh, we've got two friends in common. So I replied to him and I said, you know, the vibe here just isn't uh, aggressive. And, uh, and by the way, I see we've got a friend in common, Leroy, what a legend he is. I just thought I'd take some time to share a couple of thoughts around your comments so that you could see I'm actually a much bigger picture thinker than what you have, um, what you seem to, to believe. And, and then I thought of the example as you were talking how women are told to try and tell their attackers in either sexual or physical abuse cases their name or the name of their baby girl or something that helps that person not just see them as an object to conquer but then it softens the person and, and triggers emotional responses that makes it harder to inflict violence on that woman mm -hmm. at that time and i'm just thinking of these examples that we're told help us help others see more of us to then right. be less aggressive could this be some sort of uh, like little sign of of what we need to do more of help each other yes. Yeah, those are good examples. And there's something else going on there. It's not just, you know, a way to manipulate their empathy, but it's also it's like by reaching out to that guy on, on Facebook, you are, and, and, and you're really reaching out to his humanity. Mm. By doing that, in doing that, you are 
assuming that there is a humanity there to reach out to. Yes. And if a woman is telling her attacker, my name is, you know, Michelle, and my daughter's name is Bonnie, and like she's speaking to that part of him that is a caring human being. Mm. And 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 assuming that um he is capable of seeing her as a human being rather than going to war against that person which is predicated on dehumanizing them like that guy on facebook if you had decided okay he's just an asshole and i'm going to tear that guy down and i'm going to make him feel bad and everyone's watching this interaction and boy he's going to come out of this looking terrible and i'm going to come out smelling like a rose like that's the mindset of domination and maybe you could have done that maybe you could have humiliated him and, and that is the only sane and rational response if it is in fact true that he is a monster. But if you can entertain that he's actually a human being and who knows why he said that, maybe he misunderstood something, maybe he's having a bad day, you know, maybe well, he's afraid that he's a hypocrite. Who knows? Don't know the ethos of what we share as a brand, you know, right. guiding people and how it's all about the gray area and celebrating right. champions. If he just saw a product recommendation and calculated the air miles of that product to here. He didn't know that they were farming regenerative ag mint in India and, and completely uh, facilitating the pathway away from GMOs from thousands of farmers. You know, like that's not his fault. So I always assume right. humanity in my interactions because I believe we all have that. And if we all speak on that level, um, we're gonna be, way more peaceful, way faster. Yes, that's, that's what's required for, for peace. Mm. It's to refuse the story that the person who's doing whatever we don't like is doing it because he's evil. Mm. And to look for um, understanding. Yeah. And, and to give the benefit of the doubt. You know, yeah. and just like you said, like he didn't understand. And, and one of the mottos that I use, it's almost a mantra for me, um, is that the story that we hold about somebody is an invitation for them to act from that story. Yeah. So if we hold the story of, you know, the demonic male um, who is innately objectifying women and, and, and must therefore be dealt with on those terms, we're not actually giving him a chance to be anything different. Mm. There's no invitation to yeah. be anything different. I think about how we label children then. Oh yeah, he's just really shy. And you say it a bazillion times, they end up being really shy or you're just the class clown, come on, sort it out. And if you get called that enough, you then start to play into the role. Yeah, and a lot of kids, you know, I mean, it can be more subtle than that. Uh, a lot of parents are afraid that they've got a bad kid. You know, look at that kid, he's selfish. He, he, and and it's, it's a fear. We love our children, but we're afraid that there's something wrong with them. Because, you know, actually children are supposed to go through a stage of selfishness. Mm. And it's by having that selfishness, selfishness supported and nourished that they're able to transcend it. But you, but if you're, 
shaming them for uh, trying to meet their needs. Like, can you imagine shaming a baby for crying for milk? <laughs> you know, like, it's not like all of a sudden you become a toddler and you become bad and your needs are no longer valid. Mm. So that, so this, this, this insidious program of, of shame and rejection enters into our um, modern parenting. Yeah. So even if we're not explicitly saying you're horrible or you're shy or you're this or you're that, it's coded into a lot of parenting mm. uh, through the um, conditional uh, extension of acceptance and punishment. Yeah. Yeah, big, we got a big mess here to undo. <laughs> We do. We're solving it on this call, Charles. We're, we're, we're laying down the foundations. I think it's, it's stuff that just gets us all thinking more aware every day of those interactions, of the reactions, and, uh, and hopefully starting to find um, the compassionate road, the, the road where we see people more fully. And, uh, and where we might even entertain the idea of imagining what they're going through that's making them be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do want to spend some time talking about climate change because I think your views are uh, really exciting to me. And I'd actually just spent the last nine months researching what I thought my next book was going to be about and then realized I was going to have to massively pivot as the research just continued to confirm this is a much bigger picture problem to solve than simply looking at our shopping basket and how many carbon emissions we produce from it. Um, the, the issue around disconnection to nature, which we touched on a little bit earlier on, um, but also the idea that uh, the focus for me, just becomes more and more about through reconnection, a healing of our landscapes is is the root focus we should have. And um, you were certainly one of the people who helped to broaden my definition of of, uh, or diagnosis of the problem, let's say, and how we might Mm -hmm. find more impactful solutions. So I'd love to hear how you arrived at that yourself. Yeah. So this pattern of um, that I mentioned, speaking about greed, you know, find this bad thing and mm. conquer it. That's the comfortable solution template of our culture, yeah. of of the modern mind. So facing climate change, we want to find the bad thing and control the bad thing. So mm. it's carbon or greenhouse gases, and now we know what to do. Here's the bad thing. Here's the cause. Just like coronavirus, it's a virus, you know, or whatever the problem is. Um, racism, it's the racists. Terrorism, it's the terrorists. Find the bad thing, and now we know what to do. We have something to fight against, something yeah. to control. The Preferably war. a number. The war paradigm, again. That's right. It's a war paradigm. Uh, and Preferably, it's a quantifiable thing so that we can measure our progress and apply the mindset of accounting and budgets. Yeah, so we know at what point we arrive when we can say we've won. Yes, and we know what's good and what's bad because we can add up these figures and we know, oh, my carbon 
footprint is, you know, low. And so I'm good. Like I'm doing it right. Unfortunately, as with any other kind of reductionism, carbon reductionism leaves out everything that we can't measure and everything that we don't understand. And it turns out always that the things that we can't measure and think are not important or don't bother to measure turn out in the end to be the most important things of all. As a general rule, it's what modern civilization has marginalized and suppressed that is actually the most precious. So, yeah, so one of the things that is actually starting to get more recognition now, um, but which has gotten and still does not get enough recognition, is the contribution of uh, biological systems toward ecological health, toward maintaining, uh, among other things, a healthy climate. So to take Australia as an example, uh, you know, there were catastrophic fires. Um, last summer and okay let's find the one thing to blame them on it's climate change lost in that discussion and are you denying it or do you you know lost in that whole discussion is the fact that australia has um has implemented uh like the most extensive deforestation of any uh, developed country over the last decade, yeah. just like massive deforestation in Queensland, especially, but, but all over Australia. And this is one of the things that I, that contributed to my book research, you know, the understanding that it's not just that forests grow where there's rain, forests create rain Yeah. by, by recycling rainwater and even pulling water in from the ocean via the biotic, it's called the biotic pump. Mm. They, like life makes it rain. So when you destroy life, you destroy the forest, you destroy the wetlands, you destroy the whales, the fish, the soil, the, the microbiome, everything, then the physiology stops working. Mm. Uh, I, I just have been... Uh, I mentioned whales a bit in, in my book and just now. Um, so from a carbon viewpoint, it's been pretty hard to say that whales are that important. Now it's starting to come out like people saying, well, actually like their, their mass, you know, when they fall to the bottom of the ocean, that sequesters carbon. And in fact, they um, bring nutrients up from the depths because they feed in the depths and they defecate on the surface and that supplies the plankton with phosphorus and nitrogen and iron, um, which then supports the entire food chain, um, which including the coccolithophores and the krill and the crustaceans, which sequester a lot of carbon in the form of calcium carbonate to the bottom of the ocean. So actually they should have a good carbon score after all. Mm. And I, th I think that's better than not valuing the whales at all, but mm -hmm to value them only in terms of carbon minimizes, like it reduces their true value. Yes, exactly. Because they are an organ of a living being. Yeah. And, and that's where, where I want to see the climate conversation go. I want it to go to the, to the place of climate is like a symptom of the health of the whole organism. Yeah. And the health of the whole organism depends on the health of the organs. And therefore, we need to put a much higher priority 
on conservation and regeneration, mm. rainforest conservation, the Amazon, the Congo, uh, Indonesia, mm. uh, Queensland, um, and then to, to heal the damage that's been done, yeah. to, to have marine preserves so that the fish can come back and the whales to regenerate soil through um, organic no-till, horticulture and regenerative grazing, you know, like there's so many through water retention landscapes. We could, if we, if we humans turn our attention and our, and, and our priorities toward protection and healing, climate is not a problem. Mm. Life can maintain equilibrium. Yeah. But we're destroying life. Mm. So, so that's, that's, Anyway, that's one of the main themes of the book. Yeah, it's, it's which means that the whole polarized debate is is almost unnecessary. Yeah, you know, even well, even if the central debates we seem to have rising to the top are economic ones around like jobs, which we hear time and time again in this country around uh, the fossil fuel industry, and then you have everybody trying to find all the ways to disprove that argument and there are many by the way um, uh, but uh, i feel like if we try and keep making it an us against them we'll spend so much energy fighting so many years will go by until we have finally proven one of the parties right or wrong and we've lost all of this time that we could have been spending regenerating landscapes Right, and both sides could agree on regenerating landscapes. Exactly, it feels like that's our beautiful overlap that we're desperately seeking. Because it's worth doing whether or not uh, greenhouse gases are causing global warming. Mm. You know, you regenerate the landscapes and and the springs start rising again and the streams start flowing and the songbirds come back and the soil improves and the water becomes clean again. And like, what's not to like? You know, even if you don't care about the carbon sequestration. Yeah. And yeah. by the same token, like, even if you're not worried about greenhouse gases, uh, uh, pipelines and offshore oil drilling and mining uh, for coal, like fracking, I mean, these cause all kinds of other damage mm. that, that you don't have to, quote, believe in climate change in order to be concerned about those things. So I feel like there's an unnecessary, an unnecessary war going on. Um, and even by saying, I don't know, like there's some more complexities that, that I won't go into, but I just wanna put that out there as a possibility that maybe this is not about finally proving that we're right. And maybe victory doesn't mean that the other side goes home with their tail between their legs, admitting that they'd been wrong all along. Mm. What, if, what if the healing of the world requires that you sacrifice having, being proven right? You never get vindicated, but things change. You never get to be the hero, but the world heals. Are you willing to make that sacrifice? Are you willing to be wrong? Why are we so not willing to be wrong? It comes back to that wound of self-rejection. Yeah. You know, I'm good because I'm right. Mm -hmm. so, so that means that, that your attachment, to the extent that that influences you, and, and 
like I'm not excusing myself from this to, to the extent that that influences you, your willingness to admit that you were wrong <laughs> is not a function of intellect and evidence because you feel personally threatened. If someone says you're wrong, they're also saying you're bad. Mm. And that is hard to take when your identity is partly built around being right. And a lot of people, their political identity, like their, their, their identity as a human being depends on being part of a certain political camp, for example, um, or maybe even in a relationship, you know, I'm right and she's wrong. Mm. And am I going to really be open to evidence that maybe I was wrong when my self-worth is associated with being right? So here we come down to like all these political and social controversies. They are irreconcilable when we're carrying these deeper wounds that don't seem like a political issue. Mm. But as long as they are present, we're always going to be fighting each other. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there are so many beautiful local groups organizing, rallying, like we don't want to quash that amazing energy of people waking up and starting to care for our planet and the, the condition our planet is in. How do we broaden our um, definition of what matters then rather than just always focusing on, say, the fossil fuel companies? Like how do we actually broaden? Because one of my things is just working on that land and desertification reversal. I mean, that would just be incredible if those things started to become, and they are, because there are some amazing champions on the ground showing us what can happen. Um, but in the bigger picture of things, in political debate, I mean, it looks like we'd be waiting quite a while to make those as important to the climate conversation as the fossil fuel um, conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the one reason that the environmental movement is attracted to the fossil fuel conversation is that it, it uh, presents us with obvious bad guys yeah. and, and a single cause of a complex problem. So we're psychologically disposed to those things. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying we should stop, uh, you know, by the way, because of course yeah. there's so much destruction of life in fossil fuels, fracking, et cetera, as we were talking about before, but. Right. Yeah, I'm definitely not saying drill baby, drill baby, drill. <laughs> um, although, you know, when I'm, sometimes people think that I'm on the other side because You're I sure. am. <laughs> yeah, I'm questioning the narrative, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what I'm saying is, I almost don't care which side is right in the global warming debate because I want the fossil fuel drilling th to stop anyway mm. for other reasons. Mm. And it seems that the carbon narrative is a useful device to, to bring about what I've always wanted, but it's dangerous to stand just on that because what if the skeptics are right? You know, what if temperatures start cooling? I, I don't think that they're right, but I don't know that they're wrong because science isn't always right. Sometimes long-held, cherished scientific uh, agreements, consensus, um, give way to new paradigms. So I'd rather not rely on global warming as the basis 
for all environmental policies. Mm. Um, I, I think that, and, and I think that it's maybe even a strategic mistake to rely on it too much when we could bring in the people who are alienated by that argument. When we're talking about what you're doing, you know, to, to heal the land, to, mm. to do water retention and soil regeneration. Uh, and even from the carbon narrative, actually, those are probably the only things that could reduce carbon by enough in time. Yeah. Much easier to change our agricultural practices than it would be to reverse the entire fossil fuel inf infrastructure. Mm. And clean energy isn't very clean. Mm. It has all kinds of problems. So, yeah. so Certainly an involvement. Um, a work in progress, yeah. Yeah. Um, something I love that I've heard you talk about and read in your books is uh, your metaphor of how we view the planet in relation to ourselves and we view it as a parent that can always get us what we need and is always just going to provide for us and how we need to maybe look at examining that relationship and making the planet our, our partner, our lover. Can you yeah. speak more deeply to that? Because I think it really hits the nail on the head. Yeah. You know, we call, call it Mother Earth. And the appropriate relationship with the mother is that the mother gives and you receive. Now, of course, as a parent, I know that, you know, my children are the greatest gift I've ever received. But on the material plane, I'm doing most of the giving you know, and they're doing most of the receiving and that's so that they can grow and they can become adults. Um, that, that's my job and their job is to grow and to learn and to develop. So our relationship to earth has been very much like that, where we've taken and taken and taken and earth has given and given and given. And I think it's time I'm not talking about the indigenous here. They, they lived in a reciprocal relationship, but I'm talking about civilization. And I, so I think that it's time for us to grow up and to enter a relationship with earth that's not only about taking, but about co-creation um, and, and giving and receiving, like the relationship with a lover, mm. where unless you're like just a big baby, and have an infantile relationship with your spouse or your partner, you're not going to just want to take, you know, you want to create together. You want to give something back. It's, it's a primal act of courtship. In fact, is to give a gift. So I think we need to enter courtship with the earth. Um, and under, and, and to step into our adult incarnation as a civilization, which means becoming a full contributing member of the community, or you could say of the tribe of all life on earth, because every other species contributes something. The forests bring the rain, the whales cycle the nutrients. I mean, the, the bacteria fix the nitrogen, you know, every species offers something that's not just for itself. We're supposed to do that too. <clears throat> what does that look like? Right now it's obvious. It's to repair all the damage. What's, what's our purpose in service to life in a thousand years? I don't know. But it's the question that it's time to start asking, just as any adolescent starts asking as he or she enters adulthood, why am I here? Mm. 
What am I for? What is mine to do? What is my gift to the world? No adolescent, no young man or young woman is content to only pursue their security and their wealth. <clears throat> Ambition doesn't actually work like that. Ultimately, it wants to turn towards service. And collectively, humanity is, is also, I believe, reaching that point. Mm. And so, yeah, it almost feels like we've been searching for our greater purpose for thousands and thousands of years. And in doing that, we've created a lot of destruction and we've taken a lot more than we've given back. And perhaps it almost sounds like what you're saying is you're almost calling us to realise what our purpose is, is to actually realise how brilliant we are in what we can do to give it all back and some. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a sense, maybe there was nothing wrong. Like maybe we were supposed to, maybe our purpose was to grow. But it's obvious that that is not it anymore. Mm. I don't think the planet can take a lot more growth. And even despite ourselves, growth is slowing down. Mm. Population growth is rapidly slowing down. Economic growth is slowing down. We're really transitioning to a new stage. So I think we have to embrace that. Uh, I, I wrote my economics book um, around this topic. Like what would a post-growth economy economy look like yeah. that is you know um part of ecology um and so we have to start conceiving of ourselves in a different way mm. not as a as a you know adolescent having a growth spurt um but as entering adulthood okay this kind of growth is over and a new kind of development is is ready to begin and do you feel like this is going to happen at the grassroots um, rather than from the top down? It doesn't look like I'm seeing many signs of inspiring leadership calling us to do this. Is it, is it about us organising at the grassroots level and, and starting to it's grow? A, you know, this consciousness is seeping in to every level. Okay. Uh, the, it, it is, so people in elite institutions are no less affected by this shift of consciousness than anybody else, but their institutions prevent them from acting on it very well. But we're all in the same boat, really. You know, like you, you, you want to be more loving to the earth and any product that you buy comes wrapped in plastic. You know, what do you do? Like I, I want to, you know, there's supplements that I like to take, you know, and I buy them. Um, and they come in plastic. Like we're, 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 we're stuck in, well, I won't say stuck, but we are uh, inhabiting right now an infrastructure that is less and less aligned with our consciousness. Mm -hmm. So this brings up a lot of uh, um, non-trivial problems <laughs> to solve. You know? Absolutely. And I guess that first thing is that we feel called to examine in the first place. And so we start to examine. Yeah. So as a last question, I, I'd love to ask, so Charles is a really old guy sitting in his rocking chair on the porch, looking back at the last 50 years. What, 
Do you have any hopes for what you would like to have seen shift over those 50 years? Yeah, it's a hard question. Like part of it for me is what do I dare hope for? Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, well, because when we dare hope, theoretically, or uh, it, it becomes possible, right? We know that our brain starts opening doorways of thinking as soon as we actually imagine. I, I would, yeah, I would like to look back on my life and say, wow, peace consciousness really took root and is really growing. Mm. Peace between nations, between people, um, an age of empathy, of understanding. People really get it now. And we're starting to see the results. We're all on the right track. Um, the age of love is underway. I'd like to, to look at the world and see that that's happening and know that I'm not fooling myself. Beautiful. And I'd like there to be some examples of that that just make me say, wow. Wow. Mm. Is there something you're personally uh, pained by that you would love to say wow about? Was there something in your mind when you said that? Um, and there's a lot of things, you know, that bubble in and out. Israel and Palestine, mm -hmm. for example. Um, the prison system. Mm. Mm. The whales. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Charles. What a great uh, conversation. I really appreciate your time and coming on the show. I know everyone will be thinking more deeply and holistically after this conversation. So uh, thank you for that. Thank you, Alex. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action. Uh, and uh, there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit uh, stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written over the past nine years of writing a blog. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added and I can't wait to see where that community takes us. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus uh, Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week.